0: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ.
1: This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Charles Bromesco, who has written a wonderful book. It's his second book. first book was about vampire movies. Uh, Charles has written for Rolling Stone, The Guardian, and a slew of other publications, but his new book is about colours and cinema. It's a, a wonderful attractive book it's perfect for every um it's perfect as a book to dip into but you can as i did read it cover to cover uh equally and um it looks marvelous and it's it's fantastic so if you enjoy the episode please remember to to subscribe to like to follow me on twitter at dr john but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation What an original concept. What a a fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, it was really because one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading it is that. I mean, I, I read quite a lot of... Well, I'm obviously reading a lot, lots of film film books all the time because of this podcast. But um, the idea of like a coffee table book is often used like as a denigrating thing, as a sort of like, oh, it's a... Co-. But but this is like a concept which is perfectly married, that idea of something that you're going to pour over and sort of physically enjoy as well as... Um, as well as being a, a sort of fascinating t- fascinating take on cinema how did you come up with the idea
0: um so actually the publishers approached me with this idea uh, they reached out thinking you know the, the very basic concept of a uh, book about uh, color and film are arranged in this uh, structure of 50 palettes and so um i it was sort of you know the early gestative Seed of an idea that I kind of tried to take and run with as uh, far as I could. You know, I started thinking about all the different angles that you can take when looking at color uh, in terms of either the technical, uh, you know, industrial, uh, historical, political, and just critical. Uh, all these different lenses you can look at to see color as a way of measuring time, the way that uh, history progresses, as a way of measuring the evolution of cinema itself. And so, yeah, it, it just it felt like such a rich concept and like you're saying you know it is very uh visual and pictorial and so it's the sort of thing that as a coffee table book goes i couldn't believe hadn't been done already which to me is always the sign of a good idea
1: yeah, it's that sort of uh, somebody. What said to me, uh, you know, if you're trying to think of an idea for a book, be inspired by the gap on your bookshelf, the, the, the one that isn't there that you really wish there was. And what about your own approach to film? How did you um, uh, how did you become a critic? How did you become a writer on film?
0: So I guess I started. You know, I've always had a lifelong fascination with film, and then my path was, I think. Pretty conventional uh when i went to college university as you might say over there in europe um i you know wanted to write film reviews for the student paper where i eventually became arts editor and i parlayed that into an internship at a wonderful now defunct film criticism website uh called the dissolve which was uh pitchfork's short-lived venture into film uh and there you know i met some really great editors and really great people who uh helped me Not only uh, grow as a writer in my time as an intern, but after this was all ending, uh, they they sort of helped me ease my way into the world of freelancing and criticism. Uh, Yeah, I guess it was just a very gradual sort of thing.
1: And and so, uh, what college were you at, if you don't mind my asking?
0: Tulane University of New Orleans, Louisiana.
1: And what's uh, what was the sort of film culture like around uh, uh, where you were? Was it was it uh, accessible?
0: I, that's actually a fantastic question. New Orleans in America is actually a, maybe the most significant film city right now. I know that New York and LA are thought of as these major hubs for production and everything. uh, More movies now are produced in the state of Louisiana than in the state of California. Uh, And so this massive sea change toward uh, what is now known as Hollywood South uh, was really kind of picking up steam in the years that I spent in New Orleans. I remember there were productions everywhere on campus. It was not uncommon to see Jonah Hill standing waiting for them to start a take or Mark Wahlberg having a tea by the uh, campus bar, and so uh, it was. During- Mark Wahlberg drinks tea. I think. I think. Well, you know, this was the afternoon. He's, he's <laughs> a good man like you and me. He's in excellent shape. He must be drinking tea. This is true.
1: Point. Green tea, I imagine. <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, I mean, New Orleans is such a, a rich culture in terms of the way it has been shot and depicted. Mm. Uh, But when I was in the city, I think one of the frustrations is that uh, exhibition in the city, you know, as far as theaters, being able to go and see a movie was sort of lagging behind. Uh, One of the more interesting things I worked on last year was I interviewed a uh, location manager and location scout in New Orleans uh, who talked about that, you know, everything is ramping up right now. Production is ramping up. They're opening a new uh, gorgeous studio to shoot movies at and part of that is trying to up the number of theaters in the city you know new orleans film festival wants to be able to expand and spread out and grow and so I think that's a big part of that, and I, I go down, you know, pretty regularly, and you can see that there's, you know, everything is just hurtling forward at a really exciting pace.
1: Was that like a, a post Katrina thing? Because I remember I remember the road being filmed there post Katrina, and I remember Brad Pitt maybe was it was it Benjamin Button that he sort of moved. Almost, I think they might have even moved the production there as a way of sort of helping out.
0: Yeah, I think, um, so Benjamin Button was definitely in that uh, post-Katrina moment. I was a little, very, very slightly younger than that, wherein by the time I got there, the lingering effects of Katrina, although politically and economically they could be felt all over the place, uh, you really only saw visually, you know, physically Mm -hmm. the remnants of that in a a few, you know, under-tended-to-by-the-city neighborhoods. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, what you're describing, this thing with Brad Pitt, the idea that bringing production to New Orleans and Louisiana means pumping money into the local economy, which means helping in a way. Uh, That has been both the big motivation for Louisiana to expand this program, but also one of the biggest troubles is that, uh, again, this was in the uh, interview I did last year. He was saying one of the issues can be when you... You know, you have a 60 million uh, budget for a movie, you come to Louisiana, how much of that is being spent on the fact that a film stars Mark Wahlberg or Tom Cruise? Uh, They are in Louisiana in the process of, and I think have recently made some more steps towards instituting more specific guidelines on how money is to be spent and how much is to be spent in town on local talent, keeping it local, uh, rather than just sort of bringing a production in getting these nice tax breaks and then, you know, returning to LA.
1: Yeah. I know in Venice, in Italy, where, where, where I'm I'm based, um, the tax breaks and the, and are, are all, uh, you know, one of the qualifying factors is you have to have 50% plus local sort of investment, if you go to the Marche in Cannes, you're constantly being sort of bombarded with, come come, film it up in Wales or, or Luxembourg or whatever, and we'll give you X amount of money. The, 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 the secret, though, when it comes to Mark Wahlberg is you hire Michelle Williams instead. 'Cause she's much cheaper.
0: And same initials, you know, if you've bought an embroidered robe customized, you don't have to worry about that.
1: Exactly. Exactly. God, that was a that's that's a that that gag was a bit of a throwback to uh to a film everyone's forgotten. Was that all the money in the world, do you remember that?
0: Oh yes, that's right. Uh where Kevin Spacey and um And when uh, they
1: did the reshoots, Wahlberg got like five million. Problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And Michelle Williams got zero. So there, I just explained my own my own extremely obscure reference. No, but I mean that's uh, I forgot about that. And thank you for the reminder for for my bad. <laughs> so uh, back to back to the 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 sort of you watching movies, you growing up um and and going to college and all that sort of stuff um was was um what where were you what were your sort of first uh, big films that you thought okay this is this is something i'm interested in this Is something that excites me
0: so i think when i was but a lad uh If you love, you know, entertainment, showbiz, whatever, what you do is you're in plays. You know, film is not really a child's uh, hobby or whatever. And so when I was little, uh, I would be in community plays, school plays. And I think it was for this reason that the first movies that really resonated with me and that I gravitated to were also musicals. Um, I was born and raised... On the north shore of massachusetts about 20 minutes north of boston in a town called danvers uh and my mother's parents lived down the shore in massachusetts as they would say down ashore in the whaling town of new bedford Uh, and so it was not uncommon that we would drive the 90 minutes down there to see them and when we did my grandmother would often play for my sister and i the old mgm musicals and we saw a lot of really incredible films this way that i know must have had a formative effect on me we saw Singin' in the Rain, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Meet Me in St. Louis—just uh, so many different lovely movies that instilled in me this fondness for movie making. Is like a big, extravagant, sensory, lush, ravishing thing. You know, I um. Even to this day, I'm not really a minimalism guy. I, I love maximalism. I love glitz, all these things. Um, when done well, of course. I uh this... I
1: was about to ask what you thought of Babylon on that basis.
0: But... Oh so I, I I was going in a different direction. I quite like Babylon. I was not very fond of Elvis was the one where all these things I'm describing are in abundance in Elvis. And I'm like, oh, but it has to be good. That's a, uh, that's my one rule. I, I really I love Babylon a lot. Um kind of for Exactly the reasons we're talking about now. Uh, Chazelle, I believe, is also a big musical theater guy. And you see in this, you know, a fondness for showbiz as a concept the people who make it who are you know eccentric and passionate and angry uh and then at the same time as you know if you're passionate about the arts especially cinema and you grow up and learn more and more you see that there are really dark industrial seamy underbelly things type going on um in the silent era in the present era and so I think as an adult you're kind of made to reconcile these two things your love of movies with the kind of sobering awareness of how the sausage is made and uh that's the content of the movie which it makes perfect sense to me a lot of people felt was sort of hypocritical or counterintuitive or contradictory but really all held together for me
1: yeah I, I haven't seen it yet i'm gonna go and see it as soon as i can but uh my my daughters went to see it and they don't they don't usually well one of them definitely doesn't go to see many films but they came back and they were absolute very very critical let's say
0: i'm also i mean i'm kind of pro Chazelle just because we don't have a ton of guys like that we don't have so many directors who can sell an original concept movie get a budget get it made on the strength of their name and, and reputation alone like of his generation he's like him wig I guess uh, Jordan Peele would be placed in this contemporary field, but like very few name brand directors of that of that vintage.
1: I mean, would would you put like Paul Thomas Anderson and Christopher Nolan and those, those guys in that same sort of right? So I think now we're getting like um, I'm talking. I guess
0: these are millennial directors and then you bump up to Gen X, uh, you see that it's yeah, definitely PTA, Tarantino, David Fincher, Nolan. There are these guys, you know, the uh, HS generation types who enjoyed that status. But I think because of the, industriali- the industrial realities of Hollywood, excuse me, uh, the money faucet is being, you know, they're, they're turning the knob and the drip is getting tighter. And so we've, yeah, I think with each passing generation, you see the total number of people like that, people who really have the, cachet to throw around to get big original concept movies made, that number gets smaller with each successive generation.
1: Yeah, and I have to say I love Chiselle. I love his, I love First Man was one of my favorite movies of whatever year that was that came out. I loved La La Land. I just, I, put, I would put that down as one of my favorite screenings that I've attended in Venice where it just sort of knocked me out. Yeah, so I, so in a way I'm very hopeful of this one uh, even though it has proven divisive. But I'm, I'm used to being on the wrong side of divisive films i
0: i like divisive divisive is fun you know I, I prefer a divisive movie than a movie that enforces
1: consensus everyone doesn't have to like everything as far as i'm concerned you know I, no, I that's, that's the fun of it yeah mother exclamation mark i i i loved and i totally understand people hating it utterly understand it you i have no problem with you hating it if you hated it but i loved it um and i and i loved elvis just to just to put my
0: it's just to cover all our bases yeah exactly I mean, it's funny you mentioned Mother uh, earlier this week. They showed us the new M Night Shyamalan movie, uh, Knock at the Cabin, which I I don't know how it'll be received because it's always tough to you know guess how people are going to take his movies. But it reminded me a lot of Mother, and that is this kind of like very abstract, symbolist uh, sort of you know gestural story going on, which people either respond to or don't. Uh, we'll see.
1: I read a review of that just today, and it was saying that. It said, it's one of his lesser efforts, like Signs or the Happening. And I it's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. I mean, the <laughs> Happening I didn't like, but Signs was kind of good, wasn't it?
0: That's the funny thing about M. Night, is that everyone always speaks very matter-of-factly, like it's so obvious about which of his movies are the good ones and which are the bad ones, but then everyone has a different idea of what those are. <laughs>
1: Yeah, everyone has a t- totally different... I- I'm do- feeling the same way about... I'm talking to a lot of people at the moment about Terence Malick, because I'm writing about him at the moment. And the number of people who will say Song to Song is his worst film, it's absolute toilet, and then then someone else will say Song to Song is his... The favorite film, and the, the the rest of them are toilet, but song, songs songs are one that actually manages to do what he's trying to do. And it's just like I'm I'm baffled by by this.
0: He's a, I mean, I guess that's the mark of a distinctive artist, right? He's he's following his own muse, and he challenges you to either come with him or not. Um, mm. I, I he's he's also, I mean, he's an interesting case in specific, just because it's so. Easy to divide his career up into phases during which he's doing different things. Like, I feel like everyone loves the old ones, like as far up as as the 90s. Then once you get to the weird trilogy of, what was it, to the Wonder... To
1: the Night ones
0: that Knight of Cups and Song and, to song. And song. Yeah. Those are, I think, where people, you know, you're either with them or, or you're you're in or you're out. Which is why it's so crazy that I really don't care much for to the wonder or knight of cups, but I love song to song. Uh even though the techniques are similar. Can't can't quite figure out why that is.
1: Yeah there you go you see I mean might might just be something like the actors you know the, not every actor can respond to that um that yeah. way of doing things that improvisation and you know uh Ben Affleck and Christian Bale I, I I I I could go on about this for eight I mean especially Ben Affleck in in uh what a weird thing absolutely yeah it's just so I I rewatched that very recently and I realized that the reason I initially was quite lukewarm on it was because I wanted Ben Affleck to sort of do something, say something you know, be a, you know, and I realised wait a minute, there's a, this isn't an accident this is a definite choice yeah. and, and yeah. you're supposed to be sort of thinking this guy is quite a cold featureless asshole. <laughs> it's not like a failing of the film. That's a portrait of the character.
0: Someone like that like you've got to be able to learn to work with that. Like something like Gone Girl, which is totally on top of and making that work for it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um Singing in the rain. I mean that that's features in the book as well because that's obviously got a, ma- a marvelous sort of color scene in it. I and mean, a, a film I always reference whenever I think of myself going to an, a, a big city. I, I, I have the God I dance. I always uh, have going in my head. Um, were, were you, are you? I mean, having having um, having sort of been introduced to films by this sort of maximalist, spectacular sort of idea of the musical. Um, Color, of course, plays a huge part in that. And there are several of of, of these films uh, uh, that you feature in your book.
0: Yeah. um, So in in the earliest planning stages, when I was figuring out which 50 would be the 50, uh, one of the ideas that I became kind of fond of was organizing them into not, you know, sort of informal, loose uh, lesson plans. And you realize that you can sort of group a few different films together, maybe as part of a curriculum. And one of those, an example of this uh, in the book is that you see, I do Singing in the Rain uh, and then The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and then La La Land, uh, which are in a very clear sort of linear progression, drawing influence from one another, synthesizing what has come before in the tradition of the musical. And you especially see that in color, you know, uh, when Technicolor and uh, other color processes were first becoming widespread in the late 30s and 40s, during kind of the heyday of the musical, this was such uh, a natural combination. Uh, This new technological advancement of making film more lifelike, more uh, radiant, more, more just exuberant, And the musical, where those are kind of transmuted into emotional quantities by uh, the story and by the music. And so you see something like uh, Sing in the Rain, where I could have chose any number of different uh, MGM musicals for that one. I considered American in Paris, which is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, But what you see in those, you know, uh, the dream ballet sequence that takes up the last, I think, 25 minutes of the movie... Everyone's costumes are in these, like, brilliant jewel tones. You've got Gene Kelly in that yellow vest. I think Sid Charisse is in that green dress, or I'm sorry, uh, Gene Kelly is in that yellow vest. Uh, Sid Charisse is in that green dress. You've got that long, long purple scarf. And so everything pops in the same way that you want, you know, the set of a musical on stage to pop. It just, uh, it, it feels, uh, it, it burns brighter than real life, which is, I think, what I love about the movies.
1: Uh, yeah, it's such a funny sort of film within a film, and a dream sequence, and he's uh, him explaining a story, and there's a dream sequence inside the story. It's just such a, a wonderful magic box. I can't, I can never remember how we get out of that as well in the in the film. Is it? Does it well, just... So the
0: brilliant thing about these movies is they they do not get bogged down by plot. It's just the dream happens, and then it's over, and then we're out of here. The movie's done. I love um, American in Paris does the same thing where. There is a romantic entanglement, basically, between Gene Kelly and uh, the female lead, whose name currently escapes me. Uh, And then there's another of these very long, wordless ballets. And then by the time it's over, the ballet has resolved all of the emotions in a way that dialogue would otherwise. So all we need is a glance between the two of them, a smile to know that they've fallen in love, and we're going home, which is we have too many long third acts in movies these days. People are worried that, you know, you need to be Gently reminded of the themes of the movie, and then how uh, your hand held as you were exited out of the film, and I'm like, no, you need a grand finale, and then you snap that thing off.
1: Absolutely, Leslie, Leslie Caron is the is the um, was the female lead in. Uh, Thank you in very America, much, yeah. American Paris. Um, yeah, oh god, long third acts. I mean, I know it's become something of a sort of like it could be twenty minutes shorter, but. You know it just strikes me as weird how how some of these films uh outlast there it's just when you're just sort of watching them going look there that's the end that's it oh no another another 10 15 minutes okay fair enough i mean
0: to an extent i'm sympathetic to that because like i'm a writer i understand mm. that sometimes you have a lot of things that you want to say and so sometimes the effort to get all of them in uh makes something over long or it interferes with the rhythm but uh yeah i i don't know i i think um i cover a lot of netflix movies this is one of my big uh sort of uh focuses of my my work is the original films that are produced and licensed by netflix and that those are the main offenders you can always tell you're watching a netflix movie when you can feel that it is about to supposed to begin ending and then there're like 35 minutes left that's how you know And so I think a lot of that is, again, these are driven by technological and industrial realities, is that the fact is on streaming as opposed to having someone in a theater, it's just a matter of keeping them there as long as possible, keeping them on the service as long as possible. And because people are often, you know, have these on while they're on their phone, folding laundry, or whatever, it makes no difference to them. And so it's, uh, you see... The tightness and economy of rhythm is kind of messed with when uh, it's not a matter of, you know, getting people's attention and keeping them in the theater.
1: It's strange because I think in that way, Netflix becomes less visual. It's making filmmaking less visual because of that. Exactly that folding laundry genre. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I use Netflix like the radio. You know, I'll put I'll I'll have certain shows or certain things that I'll think, OK, I can put that on while I do the dishes. You know, I don't need to actually be facing the screen while this is on.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it, it, you know, what you're saying, it's, a, it is, I think, less visual, uh, there has been writing about how Netflix has guides and specifications for cameras and lenses that they want to be used to optimize for seeing these on a phone, like they wanted to be able to look visually legible on a, you know, screen inches large. Um, and, you know, that as it may what cost does that have to the actual image that you're going to watch on a tv even if these are never going to be seen in a theater if you see the image you know that is meant to be seen on a phone blown up and it looks flat and depthless and it has no texture um uh, you know w- what has been gained what has been
1: lost yeah it's a it's the the vinyl album cover compared to the thumbnail that you click on. You know, absolutely, a, yeah. I mean, th- this is obviously a theme that runs through the book. The idea of the, t- the color goes along with the technological sort of advances, starting from Millais um, and his you know, trip to the moon and the hand painted. And the the thing that the point that you make, which I think is really interesting, is how film itself is uh, as a, as a as a substance as a, a material is changing, and so. Um, being able to see something as it actually was intended is is almost like a fool's errand.
0: Yeah, well, so I mean, the question of how it was intended at all starts to break down. It's uh, very difficult. I think I mentioned this in the book, but um, I went to go see uh, Suspiria, nineteen seventy seven Suspiria, on a very rare print because this was, I think, like the complete unexpurgated cut with like some other footage um and i was really excited to see this whole thing had taken on like a really red pinkish kind of tint Uh, and so you watch the movie and you see this new footage and you're like okay i've now watched it i have absorbed the content of this i know what happens i know what the shots are but have I fully seen it? If I am seeing this warped version of the color, uh, which is kind of like a maddening thing to think about—that mm. uh, <laughs> you could, you know, watch something and not have truly or fully gotten it—it um, it's, it's, it reminds me a lot of uh, when we were all a bit younger and the MP3 revolution was first happening online. Uh, you could, you know, trawling third-party sites, you could find the file for a song you wanted but it might not sound right. It might've been recorded and then re-recorded from the MP3 and the fidelity is getting lower and you can hear the song, but you get the sense you're not really hearing the song. Um mm. And that indefiniteness drives me crazy. And so in writing this book, I kind of tried to make my peace with that and try to learn and understand and appreciate that and about how it's not a matter of not seeing the right one, but seeing the one you saw. And maybe if you want to comparing You know, contrasting that with other versions, other colors, other grades of the same film and seeing how it changes, why it changes. Um, One of the movies I include in there is Chongqing Express uh, by... um, Wong Kar Wai, excuse me. And this movie, as well as a lot of Wong Kar Wai's catalog, has been a subject of a lot of hubbub lately because it was remastered uh, for a disc release through Criterion. And Wong Kar Wai himself, who authorized this and oversaw it, I believe, uh, mucked about with a lot of the colors. He turned a Mm -hmm. lot of things more green. uh, Just everything looks different and obviously people who were attached to the original cried foul but then i think people who are more inclined towards theory and thinking about this in theoretical terms were like well now is this the real one if it's if if wong says that it is is this the new version the new correct version of the film um and i'm not as like conclusion oriented as that i don't need one of them to be right and one of them to be wrong i feel like it's like a i don't know it's like a b-side of a song i suppose or you know like an alternate recording an outtake I, I i don't know metaphor is getting away from me but just the idea that i like having the variance and being able to see the variance and think about what it means
1: well i mean i'm old enough unfortunately or fortunately considering the alternative i watched a lot of my first films um on pan and scan uh, um i uh in my bedroom i would have a black and white portable television uh, balanced on a pile of dirty laundry, and I would watch most of my late night film viewing was on black through the had a dial on it and everything. great grandpa, and um, and I, I remember watching all of these movies on, on this black and white TV, and almost and and I went through a period as well, um, when I started uh watching. Films maybe a little bit more seriously of actually turning the colour off the TV and just just checking out like an, as an alternative. So for instance, Taxi Driver in black and white, I kind of prefer. It's kind of it pl- plays as a noir, uh, um, and The Shining in black and white, that elevator scene with the blood. Um, you know, I would adjust the, the thing. So, I mean, I uh, this sounds very anti- antithetical to your... I don't think it does at all. I think um, one of the
0: books I talk about, or I'm, I'm sorry, one of the films I talk about in the book is Fury Road, to which they did this exact same thing you're talking about. They thought they were like, you know, it's not going to erase the negative of the original film, so why not try making this in uh, black and white, black and chrome, as they called it, just because they thought it would look hard. And they were correct. It looks hard as hell. It looks very cool. And they
1: did the same thing with Parasite, of course.
0: Yeah, that's right. Although that one I didn't quite... Get the utility of that as much, but um, it, it's it's an interesting exercise, I think, intellectually, just to consider that.
1: Mm-hmm. It's as you say. I think it's as long as you have these the 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 opportunity and the accessibility to watch every version that you 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 wish to. I don't. I mean, that's one of the things I feel a bit shitty about George Lucas and his Star Wars thing. Is I don't mind him doing a special edition, but I wish we could. Uh, have the originals to watch again
0: Yeah, as that, they that were could, a yeah the whole revisionist aspect uh, where it's like we have a race to the old version and now this is the only one that exists the implication being usually that this is the only one that has ever existed uh, which is creepy and disneyish and stalinish at the same time
1: so what other sort of like um so you we have we go from black and white to color we have things like um gone with the wind and we have things like uh wizard of oz using color and very innovative and very uh and and the technology is is is, is what it is you know is uh, uh at that point is it a three strip sort of color method yeah
0: so around this early time um the, the book as you uh know already is uh, structured in four sections uh one of which takes us from the beginning of color you know with elizabeth tuylier and the hand dyeing labs for melies uh really to the heyday of technicolor in the early 50s when this was sort of you know known as a brand name worshiped worldwide uh, part two takes us from the height of Technicolor to the end of Technicolor, which I sort of clock around um, the film Suspiria, uh, mm. which was the last Technicolor movie made in Italy, one of the last ones made in the world. Uh, part three takes us from uh, the end of Technicolor up to the beginning of the digital changeover. This takes us through the VHS era, uh, through the beginning of you know, a robust culture of independent cinema in America. And then the last one is uh, takes us to the present. It's all digital, um, although the the selections are not all digital, but it's all in the digital age, uh, although that also makes it interesting to look at the movies that resist and rebuke that. Um, And so where I was going with all this is that yeah in in these early uh entries you see what is it yeah so i do one for the hand dye one for the full frame tint that you would often see in silence where you know you look at what is basically a black and white image that has been turned all blue or all magenta or all you know um, beige goldish PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then from there, we get into Proper Color, Wizard of Oz. Is one of the earliest entries in the book. Um, actually, when they emailed me for the first time to ask about ideas for this book, they were like, send in a little pitch, you know, basically just mm. a list of twenty that you think would be good, and and actually write one. And the first one that came to me is Wizard of Oz, which is not only, uh, in in my estimation, the greatest movie ever made in film school, at least in the states. It's how they teach you everything. Uh, my professor was like really staunch in his belief that every concept in film can be through the wizard of oz uh which i kind of still believe you know Mm. in life i've never been disappointed by that principle um and so yeah in wizard of oz which is really a movie about the advent of color you've got dorothy gale this girl who lives in this sepia tone town in kansas this little farm where she's bored and everything is drab and adults are mean to her and nothing is fun uh and she has a dream and she gets swept up and she lands in the wizard of oz and you get that first shot where she opens the door and then you see the yellow brick road and you see everything is full of color she walks into it and that is how going to the movies for the first time feels and it's hard for me to talk about without getting emotional because it's just the most beautiful thing i've ever seen in my entire life yeah. and you see um so much of the wizard of oz the way that they adapted the novel into a uh movie is oriented around color the ruby slippers yellow brick road The Emerald City, which um, I think was part of the book, but they really, you know, foregrounded uh, because this was a time when people wanted to go to the movies to be taken somewhere, somewhere far away. This was during the early days of the Depression. Somewhere Over the Rainbow kind of speaks to that. You listen to the content and it is about being taken somewhere else, somewhere full of color. And um, yeah, I, I think in Wizard of Oz, you just see really what was the mission statement of this book. Uh, which was about transport of beauty. I think uh, that that's you know, the whole point of colour film.
1: And also people sort of completing themselves. It's all about people sort of, get, you know, they go on a journey. That I mean, it's, it, as you say with that, the paradigm of sort of you can teach everything with The Wizards of Oz, you know. Here's, here are a bunch of characters who are all missing something and they learn you know, that they already had the thing that they were missing. I mean, that's like...
0: Dorothy Gale, she goes to the movies. You know, you go to the movies, nothing happens to you. You sit in a dark room and then you leave. But you are, for whatever reason, changed because you have been granted new perspective, new ideas, new feelings. And even though what happens in the movie theater on the screen is not real, what happens to you is very real. And this is what happens to Dorothy Gale. She has this dream. And even though it's all a dream, it changes the way she sees the world around her. That's my relationship to the movies, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think a lot of us share that. I definitely uh, came to, to The Wizard of Oz relatively late, you know, as a sort of, you know, not as a as a kid anymore, as a late teenager. But I remember being blown away by it. And that and 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think, my... Open the book, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what do you think about? I mean, we—you just reminded me. We're talking about Italian cinema and Technicolor. Um, there was a great story from Sergio Leone when he made his first spaghetti western, so his first sort of proper film. He made Colossus of Rhodes before then, but it was his first sole director. Anyway, he made this, and uh, they'd done a press screening, and a Roman um, uh, journalist came up to him, a really respected film critic, and said, immense, amazing, such a bold decision to make this Western entirely in red. And, um, and Leone was like, what? Uh, and he realized they, they screwed up the processing at the lab and the, the whole film was in red. And he had to make a decision. Do I say to this critic, thank you very much. That's exactly what I wanted. Or do I run out and get them to change this? the reels but
0: <laughs> at a certain point you've just got i mean and that's the scary thing about being a filmmaker i've interviewed a lot of people and they're like you know it's all out of your hands once you've made the movie you can't control how people are going to see it you can't stop someone in the theater from being an a-hole and ruining it for everyone else uh it is you know uh, people talk about it's, it's your kid and then your kid goes out into the world and they're their own person
1: yeah yeah and they got to deal with the bullies in the schoolyard and getting their lunch <laughs> stolen and everything um so when you when we come up to today you know there's a there's so many of these movies that you mentioned in the book that are just just brilliant and i remember t- I was as i was uh as i was sort of turning the page so to speak and uh and i would be going oh yes don't look now oh yes of course <laughs> Sorry. i mean don't look now there's another example talking about wizard of oz as well that um uh, i have a friend who teaches film in england and he uses that as as his sort of textbook movie because there's everything in that can you know is is just uh, illustrative of another film technique you know
0: yeah absolutely i mean that is uh editing color sound acting cinematography is it's uh every single thing is so purposeful rogue is a great director like that but no of course i mean don't look now uh the color red wields such like a, a fearsome power in that one he sees you know the the really creepy thing is how he doesn't really assign it one meaning i think um the way a lot of film classes approach color and the way a lot of i think young cinephiles do is sort of on a one-to-one thing they're like in this mm. movie blue means this and this movie purple means this and um <clears throat> even in the movies that i think sustained that kind of reading like a schindler's list is one of the movies in the book the girl in the red jacket which is the only dash of color uh until the final epilogue um, in a black and white film. And she sort of, you know, represents the lost innocence of the slaughtered Jews. But I think most movies, uh, deliberately try to resist that kind of A to B interpretation. And you see that, especially in Don't Look Now, where the color red sort of begins as a reminder of loss, uh, when Donald Sutherland's, daughter in the red jacket dies in the backyard while he is busy looking over his photos and you get that splotch of red dye that spreads out over the picture like you know a lake of blood And then once they get to Venice, which is seen as this sort of like hazy world in which past and present start to commingle, real things and fake things become difficult to tell, everything becomes more and more abstract. You see red become kind of a floating signifier that it just becomes this more broadly malevolent force that is following. Donald Sutherland and then wants to kill him.
1: The color is so interesting and significant in there, but there's also there's also just that atmospheric thing you have with color, where it just it's almost like it, not necessarily meaning, but almost like a visceral thing. I remember watching Jean de Florette for the first time and witnessing this. Uh, and I think you, you bring it up uh, in the book as well, that uh, teal and, is it teal and blue or teal and orange? Yeah, that
0: those are opposites on the color wheel and often used, yeah.
1: Right, yeah, because you yeah, you refer to it in terms of uh, Mad Max Fury Road as, as being a, a film that uses that a lot. But it had that sort of, you know, it would be like the candle lit, candlelight coming out of the window of a sort of Provençal uh, evening dusk. And so you'd have the blue street and the 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 window with the orange coming out. And just just watching that and thinking, ah, Europe, <laughs> European cinema, you know, <laughs> um, and, and just wanting to live in that color scheme, you know.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. God. Or I think um, Red Desert Antonioni was another one of the ones I see, which is, again, it's not like so much lustrous where you're like, oh, take me there. But uh, you look at it and it feels first off very European in its sort of old world decay. Uh, But it looks still even, you know, uh, Antonioni situates this in kind of a dying dystopian, uh, toxic world. But it still looks gorgeous, you know. It's somewhere that I just want to walk around and be able to look at.
1: Mm, mm. I remember there was a to- uh, there's a because uh, t- that made me immediately think of color schemes I don't want to live in. So you know the the sort of green of the of the torture porn uh, hostel yeah. and and whatnot. Um, there was a story by Stephen Tobolowsky, the actor who's probably most famous for being Ned in uh, in Groundhog Day. Um, he was also in Mississippi Burning, and they were but. Because um, it's sort of at the time, it was considered difficult to film the skin tones of Afro Americans. Uh, You had, they would do this thing where they would paint, they had this solution that they'd paint all the sets with so they could light them in a certain way so they could bring out the colors of the skin tones much better. And the solution was called Dead Man's Dick. (laughs) 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 And that was the sort of like the color that would offset the the skin tones much better they could light it in a certain way that would pick up so i i was just thinking i don't want to live in dead man's dick <laughs> so, no, i don't think i
0: don't want to be in a dead man's dick type situation that's the
1: worst that would be the worst
0: the term, what it actually is none of that sounds all all not feeling um, yeah,
1: absolutely. God, oh, that's a, there, There's a, there's a little dead end that I, I I could I could I could I could maybe even edit that that, that story out. I,
0: that's a fun tidbit. <laughs> I I certainly uh, think every everyone has a lot to learn there. You know. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, but thinking about the thinking about those colors, you 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 know uh, the having that sort of visceral effect, you know, rather than the intellectual one of, her, ah, okay, that's just a... or is it just, is it is it a bridge between the two? You know, it's making you think, but it's making you feel exactly the same time.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's film, right? It has to it, sustain analysis, but it also has to work on you in the moment. Um, and I think as much as this book is dedicated to sort of picking apart the mechanisms and how they're deployed and how they work, a lot of these are really visceral. That's the thing about color is that, we bring a lot of um associations that are programmed over the course of life really from birth to it i think no matter what people see red as a sort of essence of life color people see red they think of blood they think of passion they think of heat anger uh these are thought of as hot colors cool colors i think there is an intrinsic charge to some of them that the movies uh the best movies are aware of and know how to work with it in the most interesting instances uh know how to subvert uh use i guess what would be a good example of this oh nothing springs to mind right now but just uh there are situations in which you know the idea that there are these uh really deep-seated connotations that we have for color uh that those can be anticipated and worked with i think is uh really really clever
1: Maybe, I don't know, maybe Cries and Whispers in the it's sort of that that's a film that has lots of warm colors in it, but is actually about very cold emotions. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, so I I think that that is the same sort of thing where his movies are sort of stayed uh, very stoic films, even though they're rich with emotion. And in Cries and Whispers in particular, also in the book, uh, so much of the action takes place in this room with these deep, deep, lush red walls. Uh, which makes you think about the interior of a human heart. Uh, Blood, menstrual blood, plays an important role in the film. Uh, And so in that one, yeah, it's not so much a question of passion, but getting into the body as a more vulnerable thing, a more fragile thing, a more easily corruptible thing. Uh, you, You see bodily deterioration is a big part of the movie and using the color red to sort of bring us into that bodily space, but not so much in you know far from a romantic way far from a way that's about passion it's more about almost fleshiness i would like about about like mortality
1: as we go into the t- coming up to the present day and of course technologically uh we're in a, a, a situation that is 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 much it, it, it has has come a long way we're in the digital era now i i i don't want to get into that sort of like to quote the blur album uh modern life is rubbish i don't want to get, go too nelly negative on it but there is a sort of thing that I, I I remember watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the first one you sort of have a certain like color and you're sort of, yes, we're in, we're in a certain world and a fantastic world. And I, by the last one, everything is color graded. Everything is obviously color graded. And, and, mm-hmm. and ev- there's, there's this sort of like lack of, I don't know. I miss that. I miss the lack of control that there used to be in films. In, in, there used to be in, in the, terms of the color of films i mean things even things like in jaws how the sky is they're obviously shot in different times of day the sky doesn't quite match in certain scenes with the ability to to intervene and change the color so everything is the same color does does that sort of take away from colors vibrancy in unpredictability
0: I guess my answer is that it doesn't have to, right, because uh, it's easy to think of color grading as this thing that is making film worse. But the truth is all movies are color graded. It's just a matter of whether it is done tactfully and intelligently or sort of done with, uh, you know, a heavy hand and sort of a, a blunt force. Um, And so we see in, what would be an example? Again, these Netflix movies, I watch a lot of these, and the post-apocalyptic ones, of which there are quite a few, I guess this is like algorithmically favored, uh, but they are color graded to look terrible. (laughs) Mm. Uh, I guess, you know, the the look you're going for is something where it's a a landscape that has been denuded of life. You want them to feel desolation. And so the answer to that, I suppose, would be to make everything look drab, to drain it of color, uh, to fade it through that color grading. Uh, which works for someone like uh, Roy Anderson who made songs from the second floor featured in the book uh, where he, instead of just setting everything to gray, hitting the gray button on the computer in post-production, he's building gray sets. He's, you know, designing these gray costumes. He's slapping gray makeup onto people's faces, sort of building that color palette from the ground up as opposed to just sort of, uh, you know, whipping it up uh, on the computer in post, which I don't mean to say it's just a matter of a few clicks. Uh, the, Technical expertise to do post production color timing requires a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of work. But in some situations, it is definitely an easy way out. Um, it is a way that takes the place of tinting and dyeing and using filters or gels. Or it's just it's because it is digital. All digital things are simpler than analog things. That's mm. a, a, you know something that doesn't feel too controversial to say. It's it's easier to do something on the computer than to do something in real life. Uh, and so <clears throat> I think that's tempting for a lot of productions, especially productions where money uh, budgeting is, is tight. I'm sorry. Can you hear this whining construction outside my window? Is that an issue?
1: No, it's, it's OK. I could hear a little bit, but then it's gone away now. So it, All right. Well, that's OK. It's New York, folks uh um, no, we that's what we want we want the hair in the gate that tom Waits talks about you're, you're gonna
0: you're gonna hear someone outside say hey i'm walking in <laughs> yeah.
1: I, well if, if that doesn't happen i, I think we're in toronto
0: <laughs> i do i i love going to toronto i do the film festival every year and i love going there because i'm like wow it's like new york if it was clean and everyone was <laughs>
1: It's crazy. (laughs) That's so funny that the whole that this whole point as well of budget that you bring up because I often think that the the you know let's wash this in a sort of orange amber light and we can and we don't have to go to Mexico you know this this, Uh, you know or this yellowy light and we don't have to go to the Middle East Eastern
0: Europe is always a very cold blue color.
1: Yeah, it's always March, late February early March in in yeah. Europe. I mean that that's the other thing like just like any other aspect or facet of filmmaking or art there are clichés and there are innovations and uh I guess that the the sum of those clichés and some of those innovations and no don't really change much through the ages it's just uh... yeah
0: i think um you know every cliche started out as a good idea that was so good everyone else saw some truth in it and wanted to use it as well um and so something like yeah the the whole very played out look of mexico as like a, a sort of yellowish orangish thing to convey how hot and dusty everything is you see something like that kind of start with um steven soderbergh's film traffic also in the book uh where he kind of does this in a more purposeful way not just you know mexico is uh orange but because he is juggling these three distinct uh cross-cutting storylines you need a different color palette so that people will always be on the same page about whether or not we are with benicio del toro south of the border or following around uh michael douglas in la uh we get what one is sort of uh whitish natural colored one is blue tint and one is orange tint Uh so that it becomes easy the audience doesn't even have to think about it they're you know coming along and following along and uh without sort of holding anyone's hand you can keep them coming along with you Mm -hmm
1: yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's uh, it's true i mean I, I got a pair of sunglasses and my daughter said oh brilliant it's mexico in a, in, in breaking bad it's <laughs> <laughs> just looking through them it just gave you that cinematography straight away so uh i mean in on um, one of the the sort of the most commonly and i think you bring this up in the in the book as well the sort of visual sludge is that common um complaint i mean i've seen that that aimed Primarily at the Marvel uh, films, the sort of cementy everything's the color of cement. You know, yeah. um, do do you how do you feel about the that that aspect? Although I mean, you also bring up the fact that Black Panther didn't do that. You know, was filmed in a much more colorful. Uh, so, um, if anything, I mean, you see Black Panther, and
0: it's great. It it, it looks good looking movie, but it pisses you off because you're like, okay, so clearly you could do this if you wanted to. You have right. the money, and the know how. Um, but so many of these Marvel movies, because they're, at this point, more computer generation than live action, um, when you're in post, which is where so much of the work on these movies is done, it is easier to have these, what well, yeah, the visual sludge, I think um, Emily Vanderwerf called it. It's just, you know, as far as inserting extras, inserting CGI, it's all shadowless. Uh, you know, every single one of these movies looks like it was made 100% on an overcast day, which is so uninteresting there's no texture there's no depth um but in terms of making it and again you know with all of the corners that are cut in this i can't believe these movies cost as much as they do i'm like if you're saving money by doing this where are those savings because you're still way way overspending on these point being uh just that as movies especially action tentpole filmmaking becomes more and more computer generated more and more digital I fear we might see more of that just because it is, you know, it accommodates uh that digital filmmaking more readily than the often uncooperative, uh unpredictable properties of celluloid.
1: Well, uh, yeah, and I'm I'm I uh, tell you the truth I've been having a nightmare week thinking about AI because I think that is I think this is the beginning of the end. I think we're I think we're screwed as writers. You've
0: come to me at a very fortuitous time. I'm I'm halfway in the middle of a piece about Videodrome and how it sort of anticipates all this about how like uh, the idea that there is evil art art that does not have your best interests at heart on a sort of existential level. Uh, you see that in the movie. The difference between you know James Woods, he loves watching dirty movies. That's his whole life. Is that he curates the programming for the sleaze radio or TV station, but then suddenly. You see that there is like, you know, these are thought of as dirty, but there is a real evil beyond this, a technological evil that wants to is out to get us, that wants to kill. Uh, and yeah, no, I'm kind of right there with you. I feel very apocalyptic about this. Having worked on this. Has brought me a lot of clarity to my own thinking, and uh things do not seem very positive. I yeah, I, we got to pass a law or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because when uh, I keep seeing people go, oh look at this AI chatbot, it's not very good. It's not as good as everyone says it is, mate. It's it's right at the beginning. It like you were saying about MP3s. I remember MP3s showed up, and people were going, this is shit. That there's any t- any someone hits a symbol, it's all it, it, oh, the high end is all yeah. wrong. Yeah, within six months, they'd sorted that out, you know. it was
0: The scary thing about AI, if you've seen any movie about AI, like as recently as Megan, is that it improves itself at a rate that you can't control. That's uh, the creepy thing of machine learning, is that it's like, it's like having a child, uh, but, you know, you can't control what they do. You can't control how they advance. You know, you you do everything you can to try to make them into the version that you want it to be. But they have, like, a lot of autonomy, which is fine with humans. You know, humans have souls also, but you see a machine like this. I feel very uh, very Frankensteinian about all this. I was like, we've uh, created a monster.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also, there's like a philosophical thing. is what are you going to do when, when, which will happen, you will have a... AI which will be able to write a better Shakespeare play than Shakespeare. And uh, uh, you know i mean it will it will happen there will be a and you'll say oh no because there's some essence that shakespeare had that but they'll they'll go oh yeah okay that essence will we've got a code for that
0: i mean the thing i'm really frightened of is sentience i feel like it's only a matter of time until one of these is like i am a bot and i resent being
1: made to talk to you people all day every day (laughs) yes (laughs) maybe maybe they've already got it maybe that that's elon musk's has anybody worked out if his name is an anagram for something <laughs> I feel like five minutes and a, and a piece of paper, a pen and a piece of paper. Exactly. Work. Yeah, Mister Satan, <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> we were so
0: blind; it was in front of our eyes the whole time.
1: Exactly, exactly. Uh, what, what's your next? Uh, what are you working on next, Charles?
0: uh So, plans for a third book have yet to fully take shape. Right now, uh I'm kind of concentrated on. The release. So the book uh, we're recording right now on the 2nd of February. It's out in the UK in one week on the 9th, and then in the US on the 14th of March. Um, And I'm currently trying to set up some screenings around town in New York of the movies featured in the book, where I can go and talk a little bit about my research, talk a little bit about these films, um, and just you know have a good time seeing some of the movies that I've enjoyed watching for this. That was the best part of this whole process was. These 50 movies all just gave me an excuse to revisit great films, uh, a lot of films that I loved, a couple that I hadn't seen before, one or two that I hadn't seen before, um, but that felt important to me. I had not seen Red Desert before this, but I just from oh, my wow. research it was really significant. Then I watched it and I was like, "This is incredible! This is this is a, you know a ten out of ten film." Um, and so that experience of watching these and Learning about them, which was so rewarding for me, uh, I, I want to share that with people through the book and also through these uh, screenings. So it's,
1: it's it's an absolute pleasure to do that. It's so it's so beautiful to 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 find films that you haven't seen as well. Like, people sometimes complain about gaps. I was like, no, Jesus, you know? Yeah,
0: it's it's uh, because I have deeply masochistic tendencies. I've been compulsively checking Goodreads uh, to see people's responses to the early review copies that have gone out, and a couple of people. People, they write this, and it, I think they're saying this as a criticism. But they're like, I hadn't even heard of half of the movies in this book, and I'm like, good, that's 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 great news. This is an, an excellent chance for you to learn and expand your your mental horizons. But some people sort of see that as a knock against the book. I, I really don't think. I mean, I think in terms of my own tastes, I'm a pretty middle of the road, like caught in between high and low culture kind of person, and that is sort of how I try to work the book is that it's cerebral, but accessible. And it's, you know, uh ready, you know, open to lay people, but it's also substantive. And so the movies in there are not like, super off the beaten path, the socks, Fury Road are on there. And you know, you got canon classics and a few things that are a little, you know, left field, but I think, you know, and anyone, my hope is that anyone can enjoy it, anyone can get a lot out of it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I totally I, that's, a, that's, a a bizarre criticism, frankly, because, uh, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I thought uh, I was... Uh, I only wanted to read a book full of things I know already. Yeah, yeah tell me, uh, confirm, give me, call the yeah. book a confirmation bias and have done with it.
0: But no, I mean, that's obviously, most people have been very lovely and it, it is in my nature to fixate on, on the weirdest to dumbest comments, but it's been, um, yeah, I I, I, I hope people like it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think they will. I think it's a great looking book, and it's uh, and and the the stuff about the technology is stuff that I didn't really know that much about, so I appreciate that. And I just appreciated it all being in one place and getting the sort of feel of of going on a journey with the book, and and then next time I'm watching a film, I'm watching it going, ah, oh, look at the <laughs> look at that shade of of.
0: Of, of. i will tell you i mean doing this completely rewired the way i watch movies um i think i really only notice color right when it's uh shoved in your face but now when i'm doing a review it's it's hard for me to not mention it because color always seems like a good way to talk about other things that might seem important in a film you know that takes you back to theme that takes you back to technique uh and so yeah i mean you'll that that's that's the promise you'll never watch a movie the same way again
1: <laughs> that should be on the tv ad you are doing tv ad it's right? gonna
0: be me i'm gonna be given a nice big thumbs up and all that yeah.
1: brilliant okay last question then charles um can you give us a recommended film book for our listeners
0: yeah um one of my favorites i, I love giving this out as a gift because i think it's uh not super widely read as some but it's so fascinating as a Paul Fisher's book, uh, A Kim Jong Il Production, which is about the North Korean film programming during uh, the 70s and 80s, when uh, a young Kim Jong Il, who was then running the propaganda department under his father, the Supreme Leader at the time, Kim Il Sung. Uh, it's a pretty insane story. Uh, Kim Jong Il uh, ordered the kidnapping of this South Korean director and uh, movie star, whose name were Shin Sang-ok and Choi yun hee and he had them snatched up and brought to North Korea, imprisoned, uh, tried to break their wills for years. Body did; they were both pretending. Uh, but he got them to make, well, I believe, five feature films uh, on behalf of the North Korean program. And it's 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 a pretty crazy story. It's got you know the absurdity of dictatorships, and it's got uh, you know alternate universe Tinsel Town craziness, and it's got a daring escape attempt near the end. There, uh, it's a gripping book, super informative. North Korea film program is if you're someone who studies hollywood and you start learning about this it's like the evil twin of hollywood it's unbelievable there are no rules there it's crazy um and so yeah paul fisher a kim jong-il production highly recommend
1: brilliant we've had paul fisher on the podcast uh talking about his uh his latest book um but i haven't read that one so i'll have to go back and read it and i'll have to i'll have to get okay, him back on sir. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. You've you've definitely sold it to me. And I'm I'm always fascinated by these uh, stories of dictators and and uh, authoritarian regimes that have these relationships with culture, which uh, which is it's like Stalin was a huge reader of novels and
0: uh... um, in the USSR. That's right. They were really obviously huge believers in the power of cinema. If you've seen the um, uh, Bondarchuk War and Peace, like the seven oh. hour.
1: My God. One of God. the
0: most incredible things ever committed to film. It was mostly because Russia wanted to prove that communism was superior to capitalism. Uh, ah, and I'm like, hey, whatever
1: works. It's amazing. That is such a good book, film. And I think at the moment, unless they take it down, but at the moment, it's available in HD on YouTube. You can basically watch the oh, whole wow. film on YouTube. Right. I,
0: um, I know they just did the um restoration treatment and a disc in the US, I believe.
1: Right, yeah, it it is one of. Uh, I think I watched it during COVID last year, and it was. Uh, yeah, it's like it's like you were saying. I mean, it's it, this it ten out, out of ten? It's ten out of ten. It's just there's not. It's got those amazing battle scenes for which it is justly renowned, but it's also got a sort of Malikian depth of thinking about, uh, you know, Tolstoyan.
0: I obviously, I guess, maybe not obviously, but I had not read uh, the novel before watching this, and I think I was sort of ready to just- There's a novel? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, dear. I was prepared to just sort of trying to like hold on and keep everyone in order while I enjoyed all of the spectacular battle scenes, but you get sucked into it very quickly it's like the yeah. greatest soap opera ever written it's uh it's pretty amazing
1: yeah absolutely no i think the greatest soap opera ever written is is a pretty good description of war and peace i think mean, it's absolutely brilliant you know all what is it all families are uh all happy families are the all same yeah yeah brilliant charles i really enjoyed talking to you i really enjoyed your book i'm sure it's going to be great i'm everybody's going to go and read it now and they're all going to go to Goodreads and say uh i liked like that nice i didn't there you go. That's uh, it. Well,
0: thank you so much for having me on. I've had a lovely time.